Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. Man, I've been looking forward to starting this brand new series. It's called Like No Other. It's a series where we're going to study the person of Jesus Christ as gospel writer Mark intended for us to see him. It's easy to get kind of a caricature version of Jesus with the way we kind of pick and choose what we read about him. But this study is going to be a comprehensive study of who Jesus really is. And I think it's going to be great. Man, I'm so excited about this new series that we're starting today. I'm really pumped. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. My favorite style of preaching is expositional preaching. That's where you go through the Word of God little by little and mine it for truth. That's my absolute favorite. Uh, But for a while, God's just had me in topical teaching. We talked for a year about standing and building your house. And we've been talking about evangelism for a while, but I'm really, really excited to just dig right on in to the Word of God and just get hardcore anchored into it over the next however long. Are you with me on that? I'm really, really excited about it. I hope you have a Bible with you, whether it's a paper one or a digital one. We're going to be in the book of Mark today and every day for the next however long. And by the way, we just diversified into three services. And look at this group here in the early service. You guys are looking good, looking really good. I got the Harveys right over here. It's good to see you guys here this morning. Glad y'all are here. Are y'all heading back down to Gulf Shores anytime soon? Not for a while. Good. We get you for a while. Is that what you're saying? Praise the Lord. Are we happy about that? They're like, who are the Harveys? What? <laughs> I'm just glad you guys are here. So we're going to be uh, doing, here's what we're going to be doing. I, this is why I'm excited about this. We're going to be doing a full comprehensive study on one person, on the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to be digging deep and we're going to be looking at who he really is as Mark intended for us to see him. We're going to look at the popular easy passages and we're going to look at the tougher, more difficult passages. We're going to see the highs and we're going to see the lows. We're going to be looking all through this. So somebody might ask the question, why Mark? Why the gospel of Mark? And I'm just going to tell you, honestly, it's because it's my favorite. It's my favorite of the gospels. I love the book of Mark. Um, Uh, John Mark was a very young disciple of Jesus Christ, and he's barely mentioned in the Gospels, not even mentioned in his own book by name. He becomes a little bit more prominent in Acts, where you see him following Paul. He's Paul's assistant for a while. Uh, But then they kind of had a little bit of a falling out and went separate directions for a little while. They made up later on. Uh, But in the meantime, Mark went with Peter and followed him, became Peter's assistant and apprentice and interpreter, especially while he was in Rome. And um, with Peter, Peter really came to regard Mark, in Peter's own words, as my own son. He wasn't his son, but we would say his spiritual son. So here's just a few uh, things about Mark. Number one, it's the first um, gospel written. Mark was the first of the gospels. There were no other written accounts of the life of Jesus by any of the apostles until Mark's letter. It may have come along in response to Peter's arrest in Rome or even his martyrdom in Rome uh, because 
it was 64, 65 AD, and the disciples, the original disciples, were dying off. And so Peter gets arrested in Rome, and this time it doesn't look good. And apparently there was an urgent request by some of the churches to say, hey, hey, write this down, write this down. Don't you leave us without writing something down so that we can have an account of the life of Jesus. And Mark, Peter's assistant, dutifully transcribed Peter's story. Now, we're not sure if they sat down together and Peter dictated to Mark or if Mark had just been following Peter and transcribed his account as, it was, as he was preaching it, but we know that Mark transcribed Peter's story. So it became the first gospel. Matthew and Luke got a hold of it, and they both used Mark's gospel as the outline for their own gospels. And they fleshed it out with more detail in each. That's why we call the first three Gospels the Synoptic Gospels. Because they're all based on the same outline that Mark provided. And then later, John apparently got a hold of maybe all three of them and read them and said, Hold on a minute. There is so much more to this story. And then he wrote his own account to expand and to deepen the story of Christ and not retread the same parts of the story and that's why John is a little bit different from the other gospels Uh, and that's why uh, Greg Engler my friend made the observation this week that's why John concludes his gospel with saying if somebody wrote down all the things that Jesus did it wouldn't fit in all the books in all the world so I think John is trying to tell us uh, that there's more to the story than even Mark uh, outlined for us. This book was written to a Roman audience. So it was written, we would say today, to the Western mindset. So it really makes sense and clicks with us. It's not like Matthew. Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. So it's a little different. It contains a lot more prophecy and a lot more of the teaching, a lot more Jewishness. And so we can understand Mark pretty easily. Uh, next thing is it moves very quickly. It moves fast. The key word in Mark is immediately. You'll see this all throughout Mark. The word immediately occurs 47 times. In other words, immediately they went here, and then immediately this happened, then immediately they did this. It's just moving very, very quickly all the time. And because of that, in this book, the next thing is that Jesus is busy. Jesus is really busy. He's always ministering, always pouring himself out. He and the disciples are always on the go. Sometimes they don't even have time to stop and eat. So Jesus is always busy in this gospel. The next thing is it's the most emotional of the gospels. Uh, You see emotional words in this gospel like amazed, astounded, indignant, stern, terrified. You see these emotional words all throughout this book. And miracles. Man, it's the shortest of the gospels. Mark is 16 chapters long, but it has the most miracles of all of the gospels. And then I want to say a word about this last thing, bios versus biography. These are two different literary styles, similar but not the same. Today, if you and I want to learn something about somebody, we're going to want to read their biography. A biography is an overarching narrative of a person's life from beginning to end with as much detail as you can get in there that is relevant so that you can learn what happened in that person's life. That's a biography. But the mentality of the day was a little bit differently. The gospel writers were not out to write a biography of Jesus because the style of the day was to write a 
bios. Bios is different. Bios means life. Bio, bios means life. Graphe, graphe is the, is the Greek word for a writing. So a biography is a writing of a person's life. But a bios is a little bit different. In a bios, instead of giving the entire story of their whole life with as much detail as possible, instead what you do is you connect specific dots together to show what that person's bios really was, to show who they are. In a biography, you want to see what happened to them. In a bios, you want to see what was their purpose, what was this person's real identity. They're connecting bios dots together to draw a picture so we can see who Jesus really is. That's why when you read the Gospels, it feels like you're reading a bunch of little narrative units strung together. It's because they're writing in the bios literary style. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Is it too early for me to be going through all this detail? <laughs> okay. Um, so you'll see this. You'll see this uh, really clearly in Mark. Mark or Peter, they really thought this gospel through before writing it. And you'll see this ingenious means of connecting these bios dots together, leading the reader up to an apex of the book. They want to lead you to one inescapable conclusion in the story. And it's not the crucifixion and the resurrection. No, long before that in the book, there's one apex, there's one watershed moment that happens that ought to convince every reader of something really clearly that they want you to see. And then only after you get that, the gospel narrative completely changes tone and pace and moves in toward a Holy Week and the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's amazing to see, and I'm going to help you see that as we study this incredible book so i hope you're in this with me i hope you're in this with me um so let's jump right in you ready to jump in on this all right who's ready anybody ready ed you ready all right let's let's get going on this mark 1 verse 1 here we go the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, time out real quick. I just want to say, I'm going to be, when I do expository teaching, I use a formal equivalency translation. I use a, we call it sometimes a word-for-word -word translation. There's no such thing as a word-for-word -word translation. But I use the, the English standard version. It's a, it's a contemporary, modern, very accurate, super, super good uh, translation of the Bible. I will always use that for my um, uh, the text that we're working out of today but I will often also go to the new living translation which is a dynamic equivalency um, it's a little bit uh, more loose with the individual words and tries to be more accurate with the concept that's being communicated so when you see me reference other verses like later on I'll be talking about something in First um, John I think and so uh, that'll be new living translation but as long as we're in Mark we're going to be in the English standard version good Okay, all right, so Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's the beginning of the gospel? If you were writing the gospel, where would you begin? All four of them begin in different places. You know, Matthew starts off, he's writing to Jewish people, so he starts off with a long genealogy showing that Jesus is good and legit Jewish. 
and he ties it all back uh, and all that stuff. Uh, Luke gives the prophecy uh, from Zechariah about John the Baptist, and then he gives the full nativity scene. We have the most complete picture of the nativity scene in Luke. John, John starts off, the beginning is this great theological statement tying Jesus to God and showing us who he really is. But Mark doesn't start in the same place. Mark begins the gospel like this. Let's look at the whole thing. Mark 1, 1 through 4. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So what is the beginning? Well, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths Straight. So who's he, who's he talking about here? Huh? John the Baptist. Okay, let's look at the next verse. So John appears, this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. It's John the Baptist, and he appears baptizing in the wilderness and proclaim in the wilderness. Okay, remember that word. We're going to come back to it. He's baptizing in the wilderness, and he's proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John says the beginning of the gospel is John the Baptist. And so for, and by the way, John the what? That's right. John the Baptist. Okay, no Baptist buddies in here. No, no, nobody from a Baptist. Come on, let's show some Baptists. Come on, pride a little bit. Three of you. You're like, no, I left that, man. I'm not in that anymore. Okay, so wait, hold on a minute. So Mark is writing, and he says the beginning is, John, I thought this was about Jesus. I thought we were looking at the life of Jesus. I thought we were supposed to be all about Jesus. But this is really important for us to see. This is a critical moment for us. This is how Mark starts this off. So I want to give you the first blank on your page in this entire study. For Mark, the gospel begins with John. For Mark, it begins with John, if you're going to understand Jesus, Mark is saying that you have to begin with John. You have to first see John. John is more than just a precursor to Jesus. John has a very important role in the gospel. I'm going to say it this way. Uh, John is God's messianic marketing plan. All right? John is God's messianic marketing plan. And John's ministry is out in the, where is it? In the what? It's in the wilderness. It's out in the, so now wait a minute. If God is sending a messenger to tell the world that the Messiah is coming, why put him out in the wilderness? Why not put him in the town square? Why not put him in the middle of Jerusalem, the big bustling city somewhere? I mean, seriously, if, if God wants the world to know that the Messiah is coming now, wouldn't you think he'd have a marketing strategy that makes more sense? Maybe a, a stage and speakers and lights downtown somewhere so everybody can see and hear. Maybe, maybe publishing Facebook videos and TikTok videos. And man, if we could get him on Tucker Carlson, that'd be great. You know, somehow do a great marketing strategy. But that's not what God does. God puts... John in the wilderness, way outside of town. Not a little outside, way outside of town. Way on out there in the middle of seemingly nowhere. 
So why is he in the wilderness to bring this message? This is important for us to see. There is such an important idea here in mind that we've got to uncover. For us to understand what's going on here, we have to understand what God says about creation. Think about this for just a second. God creates the entire universe. He speaks it all into existence, and he's very pleased with all of it. It's all good. He is happy with everything, the mountains, the valleys, the oceans, uh, the animals, the plants, everything. He's very, very happy with it. And then, and then as he's wrapping up all of his creative work, um, he creates the ultimate part of his creation, and that's the garden. Why does he create the garden last? We, we know he creates it to put people in the garden, but why does he do that? You've got to understand what God says about creation, and you've got to understand how the Hebrew mind works when thinking about creation. For you and me, the idea of creation is something from nothing, right? It's matter formed from nothingness. That's creation. God speaks, and it pops into existence. But that's not exactly the Hebrew mindset on creation. I mean, think about it. When you look at the story, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, what was it? Formless and void. And what do you see? You see God going through the sequence of separations. He's, he's separating the sky from the water and the water from the land. He's categorizing things. He's putting things in their place. For the Hebrew mindset, the idea of creation wasn't something from nothing. It was order from chaos. God is bringing order to everything. The whole idea of who God is and what he's doing is he is bringing order. He's taking chaos and turning it into peace. Does that, does that make sense so far? So he creates the ultimate level of order in all of his creation, the garden. The garden place is, is unique in all of creation. It's where there are intentional plants. It's lush. There uh, is fruit there, nourishment. There's water. The garden is a beautiful place, and that's the place that God sees fit to put his apex of all of his creation and its human beings he places the people made in his image there in the garden. And look at Genesis 1:28. This will also be in the ESV. God says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have domain over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see that? I've brought order to all of this. And now I'm putting you here to bring order. Fill the earth and subdue it. Bring it under your authority because you are under my authority. So as you bring it in line with you, you're bringing it in line with me. You represent me here. And so you are to fill the earth, subdue it, continue my work, bring order here. Hello? That's powerful, isn't it? I mean, we have a big job to do, bringing order, continuing God's work here in this world. But something happened before we could get to it. What happened? 
sin, right? The fall happened, right? God had said, uh, save the trees in the middle of the garden for me. Everything else is yours. But Satan came along and said, no, no, God's holding out on you. You deserve to be just like God, and you deserve that fruit in the garden. So we rebelled against God. We became criminals against God. And the result of sin coming into the world um, is that it broke everything. And what happens? Man gets banished from the garden. We're no longer in the garden spot in And now, instead of everything in the world coming more and more in line with God, isn't the opposite what is happening? Isn't it all becoming more and more misaligned? Isn't it all becoming more and more crazy, more and more chaotic? Have you watched the news? Everything is spiraling seemingly out of control. Less and less garden more and more wilderness. So here's the next blank on your page. Wilderness is chaos, and we're all in the wilderness chaos. Wilderness represents chaos, and that's where we all are all of the time. We're all out of line with God. It's just in us. We're born into it. We're born into sin, into rebellion against God. And the world is nothing but chaos. I mean, good grief, you've watched the news. I've been watching because we're going to Israel again in a couple of months. And I've been watching the Holy Land on the news lately. Have you seen this? There's fighting like there hasn't been in years right now, especially over in the Gaza area. There's uh, disunity and disruption. There's people being killed. Uh, There are terrorists going into synagogues and killing families. And not only that, there's great political unrest over there right now. People are marching in the streets by the hundreds of thousands to protest uh, some of the new uh, stuff that's trying to be enacted over there. And it's crazy. It's crazy how the holy land, God's people in God's place, are walking around in the wilderness. It's chaos over there right now. Is it that way here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's that way here. The chaos seems to be just spiraling more and more out of control. But here's what God says in Mark 1. This is the prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, preparing the way of the Lord. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The prophet, John the Baptist, his role is to say, clear the way. Whatever is keeping you out of line, whatever is keeping you crooked and messed up, whatever it is in your life that's keeping Jesus from stepping fully into your life, clear it, get rid of it. The word is repentance. So my question is this, what's in the way in your life? What are the things that keep Jesus from stepping deeper and deeper into your life? What are the rocks? What are the crags? What are the problems that keep Jesus out of your life? What's the sin that you're holding on to? What's the pet thing that you love but he hates that's keeping him from stepping more deeply into your life? 
So John is preaching this, giving this repentance call in the wilderness. Hey, we're in the wilderness. Repent and turn from your sin. And, and look at the response in Mark 1, 5. All of the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Yeah, John's call is a call to repent, to turn from your chaos bios and realign your life with him this is the wilderness cry and in this case it's compelling to all the people they recognized it they responded to it they left their villages their towns they left the city and they traveled out into the wilderness to respond to this call to be baptized for confessing their sins, to repent and to turn around. Matthew tells us in Matthew 3 that when they confessed their sins, John baptized them in the Jordan River. Yeah, this wilderness cry was compelling. It was inspiring. It was powerful to call people in and to help reveal their chaos, to help reveal their personal wilderness is the church's message compelling today are we clearing the way for the messiah or has our wilderness cry softened to a whisper or a whimper i don't think we name the chaos anymore I don't think we name the wilderness anymore. We don't call it what it is. We don't point at sin and say that's chaos in your life and Jesus wants to bring peace. Instead, we, we don't call it chaos. We, we call it a lifestyle choice. We don't call it chaos. We call it gender identity. We don't call it chaos. We call it critical race theory. We don't call it chaos, we call it reproductive health care. Hello? Are you with me on this? I mean, I figured you'd be like, either at least nod your head. Are, are you with me? Do you, are you watching the same news shows I watch? Let me, let me bring it a little closer to home for us. Um, we don't say, I'm disobedient to God and I'm living my life in chaos. We say, I'm too busy to serve the body of Christ. We don't say, I hate what God loves most. We just say, it's too hard to get the kids up and to church on Sunday. Seriously, we've made it seem that the wilderness really isn't that bad. We've made it seem like the, the wilderness is no big deal. We all just have our own little wilderness. And look, if the wilderness is no big deal, why do I want the garden? If the wilderness is not so bad, then the garden can't really be that good. I think our wilderness cry has softened to a whimper. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you, 830. I appreciate it. So here's John, and he's clothed with camel hair. Look at this in verse 6. He's clothed with camel hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate bugs. He ate bugs and wild honey. Now listen, I'm a, I'm a preacher, and I think I've sacrificed my life to Jesus, but dude, I love a good steak. I'll pay for the upgrade. You know, I'll, I'll do the extra thing. You know, I want to I wanna make sure I get a little extra every now and then, but this is dinner for John tonight. 
locusts locusts is what he ate and honey listen i don't want to make too big of a deal of this is john a freak yes <laughs> he's a freak but here's why he's doing this he lived his life in protest to all of the comforts of this world and he was saying, look, I'm going to deprive myself. I'm going to do without because I don't want my focus to be on anything that keeps me out of line with God. I want to be focused on him and on him alone. And he looks like a weirdo for that. But that's what God calls us to. I don't think he's calling you to eat bugs. But John is living the life that the other John, the disciple John, put into words in 1 John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. Those are not from the Father, but they're from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever John wasn't going to let anything be in the way of Jesus stepping fully into his life in other words John the Baptist's message is next blank on your page that Jesus is the order bringer that your life is chaos it's wilderness all the time it's confusion and darkness and danger but Jesus is the order bringer. Can I get an amen on that, 8.30? Jesus is the one who comes to bring abundance in your life, to bring peace in your life. He's the one that comes to put your life in order and to get rid of the chaos. Ooh, that's so good. And in verse 7 and 8, Mark 1, verse 7 and 8, John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. That's how more mighty he is. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message about Jesus seems so different from modern Christianity's message about Jesus. It seems the church's message today is almost the opposite of John's message. It seems like the message today doesn't focus on Jesus at all. It focuses on me and you. It focuses us on ourselves. Instead of saying one is coming who is mightier than me, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals the message in church today is that you are mighty, that you are powerful, that you can do all things, and that you should build your kingdom. It's a popular message in church today, sells a lot of books. But I got one question for you. How's that working out for us? I mean, is there, I mean, look at, look at the church in America today. Is there more order in our lives or more chaos today are we happier today than our great grandparents were our grandparents were or are we stressed and strained today are we more hopeful today or are we more pessimistic and cynical and sarcastic today are we more at peace today 
than our grandparents were? Or do we fight? I would say, if anything, we're not happy and peaceful and orderly. We're chaotic. We're wilderness all over again. I mean, good grief, the average American can't not hold on to his phone for more than about 30 seconds in any given day. Average American, I saw a study, uh, checks his cell phone something like 87 times a day, just checking for whatever the newest alert is. We got social media yapping at us. We got internet porn. We got political insanity. We got gender confusion. We got riots in cities we got economic disaster it's chaos it is chaos but jesus is coming it's chaos but one is coming who is going to bring order to everything spirit empowered order let me let me show you let me show you how to get in line with his order right now here's the order it's god and me the best thing we can realize, best thing you and I can realize, the church today, is that there is a God and you are not Him. I am not Him. The order is God and me. And, and you and I, we think it's like this. We think that, you know, me, I'm close to God. But the truth is, you're nowhere near close to God. You have been ripped away from God by the power of sin in this world. And now you are separated from him by a chasm that you and I could never hope to get across. We're separate. We're unworthy, not even worthy of stooping down and untying his sandals. But Jesus has come. And he came here and he bridged that gap himself on the cross, he stepped all the way to us. We could never get to him, so he stepped all the way to us. And he's the one that paid the price for our sins with his life on the cross. He was punished for my disobedience. He was beaten and killed for my rebellion against God. And his mission now is to redeem me and to bring me to him, to redeem you, and to bring you to him. And so how do we get in line? How do we get in order? How do we start bringing our lives into order? I'm gonna say a word that's very not palatable in our culture today, okay? Are you ready? Cover your kids' ears. You got any kids in here? Cover your kids' ears. I'm gonna say it out loud. Here it is. Submit. Submit. Humble yourself and submit to his plan. I'm not mighty. He is mighty. I'm not worthy. He is worthy. I come to him by faith, and I trust that what he's done for me is absolutely everything necessary and that I can do nothing outside of him. And when I submit to him, when I repent of my sin and rebellion, submitting to him, I turn from that and he fills me with his Holy Spirit and he begins to transform me into someone who lives a new life, an abundant life. I submit to his plan because, next blank on your page, his plan is always better. His plan is always better. God's plan for my life is better Get this, I, I promise, God's plan for my money is always better. 
God's plan for my family is always better. God's plan for my job is always better. God's plan for my retirement is always better. My life with my hands on it, my life with my plan is chaos. But Jesus is the order bringer. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians 4, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Amen? Submit to him. Let him have control of your life. Live the new life. John the Baptist has a message to you wilderness dwellers, and that is to make straight the path of the Lord. Clear the path. Last bike on your page. Clear the path for Jesus in your life. Amen.